0: Hello everyone. Welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. It's great to be here. I'm Mim Fox and I am here joined with my lovely co-host Liz Murphy. Hi Liz. Hello. Hello everyone. How are you doing Liz? Um,
1: I'm okay. I I don't know actually. I'm feeling a bit flat today.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just feel like, yeah. I know. There's a flat vibe in the air. And that's actually what we want to talk about today. So before we get to that, I just want to acknowledge the Aboriginal country that we're on today. I am recording from Mongol country and I want to acknowledge not just the Aboriginal country, but any Aboriginal or Indigenous listeners that we have around the world, Liz at the moment, uh, who are listening and Elders past, present and emerging. And also just, I would really like to acknowledge the fact that COVID has reared its ugly head yet again around the world, hey? Like we're mm. coming through what is the millionth wave for some um, places now. And in New South Wales at the moment, we're sitting in a really difficult lockdown period, which is why we have this flat vibe going on. I think you're right. I think there's like a collective flatness Yeah.
1: that I'm picking up from my friends and my colleagues and I think you're right. I think that's why you and I and Justin chose to talk about this topic today. Yeah. Yeah. As a gesture of maybe a bit of, you know, personal therapy on my own part here. But um <laughs> why not?
0: Well, for those um, listeners who have just just <laughs> tuning in, first time first time listeners, first time callers, first time you know, the phrase they use on the radio. (laughs) Um, uh, Anyway, for those of you who don't um, feel like you know Liz and I so incredibly well by now, uh, normally we would have a story by an anonymous social worker as the centrepiece of our um, episode. But um, we made a different decision today because of this feeling that we've had and actually a feeling that's been sitting with us all year and has kept coming up in conversations between us, Liz, which is this um, idea of self-care but also of I guess professional compassion or um, professional resiliency would you say? On the bright side and I think the shadow
1: to that is the vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue and just sheer exhaustion that I think many social workers are experiencing at the moment. So it's like the we're wanting to kind of have a a conversation where we share some of our own stories, Mim. That's right. We're the social workers today. We're the social workers. And it also gives people a sense of how long you and I have been um, interested in this space
0: too. Yeah, that's right. Um, That's right. So at World Social Work Day earlier this year, uh, we presented on a piece of research that we had been involved with for the last few years on um, vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue with hospital-based social workers. And at the beginning of that presentation, we talked, we shared our own stories, didn't we? About what made us interested in this research and why we wanted to do it. So we thought, listeners, we would share our stories with you, but then also tell you a little bit about our research and have a discussion about why this topic is so important to us and what we think is really necessary for us as a collegial community at this point in time, yeah?
1: Yes. Do you want to kick us off Liz? I'd be more than happy to Mim. So I'm going to it will feel a bit red because it is that just that but um, I think it sums it up in a succinct way and then we can maybe talk about it afterwards. Yeah. Because I might have some questions of you and you might have some questions of me. Sounds good. Okay. So in 1995 I burnt out. Now with perspective I can see how it happened. I was working at my local hospital as the oncology inpatients and outpatient social worker. I was a team leader for a group of six social workers. I had a constant stream of students and was doing a research project on breast cancer and social work. Outside of work I was parenting a seven-year-old and a three-year-old so um I think it's the understatement uh, to say that life was hectic. Over a period of time, work in particular took its toll. I became unable to turn my brain off. I developed insomnia and became quite numb inside. And I just went through the motions of life. And one day I came to the office and I collapsed crying and I just couldn't stop. And I found myself in my manager's office, barely able to speak. Although I do remember saying to her, sometimes I fantasise that I become so unwell that I have to be admitted to hospital and then I'll have an excuse to stop. I remember that she replied something really gentle like, I'm going to take you home now and we'll sort this out. But the sad thing is that I never got to return to my old department to say farewell I just disappeared under a cloak of secrecy and became a work cover case. It took me nine months to recover and in that time I had regular therapy, I took up jogging, became fit and I also decided on a drastic life change. I quit full-time social work, I found a part-time social work position and I taught part-time at a local college. But I never got to share my story and... Um, I've got to be honest I never really spoke of my burnout because I felt like it was a shameful secret that I needed to hide and um, it really wasn't until 2017 um, that I connected with it again and we'll get to that part of the story a bit after MIMS but what I will say now is that I feel absolutely thankful that it happened early in my career and I learned so many lessons from it um that I want to talk about later on but um maybe over to you and you can share your your tale
0: absolutely thanks Liz so um Liz and I are connected at a certain point after I'd been working in hospitals and community health for around 10 years. And I'd mostly worked in death and dying, particularly in palliative care, intensive care and chronic health. And I'd done a lot of trauma work in emergency departments. And for a long time, I'd loved that work. I'd loved particularly getting close to the individuals and families and hearing their stories. But over time, I'd noticed a change in me. I found myself increasingly distracted at work, and I was seeking out tasks that were not clinical. I gravitated slowly towards taking on students, project work, or running education programs or hospital in-services. And I enrolled in my master's program thinking that would ground me back in the clinical work. At that time, I was working in a busy hospital where the clinical work took ultimate priority. You all know how that is. And the message I was getting from my social work manager was that my studies was something I did in my own time, that they had nothing to do with my day to day work. I moved from that hospital, that busy hospital, to a different hospital in a different local health district. And at that time, the hospital was either not as busy as where I'd come from, or similarly could have been more resourced, so more staff. But the impact on me was that I had more time in my day. And so again, I gravitated towards educational opportunities, except this time was different. This time my social work manager recognized my need to be involved in non-clinical work and she encouraged me in that direction. As I got more involved in the education, I started to pull away from the individuals and families I'd worked so closely with. I found I stopped empathizing with their situations. And I started to use my micro skills to shut them down rather than to assist them to open up. I became pregnant with my daughter and while I was on maternity leave, I realised I didn't want to go back to work. I didn't want to be around the sadness anymore. Within months of returning from maternity leave, I'd accepted a job at a university enrolled in a PhD program and had started to move across to academia. Years later, I'd finished my PhD. I'd started at my current university as a lecturer in social work. And I received a call from you, Liz asking me if i wanted to be involved in this research project on compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma and it took me minutes would you say minutes moments to jump and say yes and what was happening for me at that moment to be really really honest was that i hadn't realized that it was compassion fatigue that had actually ushered me out of hospital social work now on telling me my story it's really clear to me that that's what I was suffering from. But at the time, I really had no idea. It's so interesting, isn't it, um,
1: that that call, that fateful call in 2017 really connected us in a way that we both got to, um, I guess, heal in some in some ways. Yeah. Um, our own wounds that were caused as a result of compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. Um And that that 2017 call was as a result of the hospital that I was then working at had a work health and safety committee of social workers. And they identified that the biggest risk for their social workers was compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. And I remember one of the um, the social workers uh, came and said that they had started doing some some preliminary research in this area or, or a lit review yeah. and couldn't find very much in relation to what is, what constitutes a safe workplace for social workers in hospitals and or how do we actually uh, look at that? How, how do we know what is safe practice and, and is vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue a real risk for social workers? So that was the call that I made to you looking for an academic. <laughs> Who do you know? And I don't think I finished that sentence.
0: Yeah, that's it. That's it. I jumped so quickly. <laughs> it's such a it's such a funny moment. And um, And I think it's a really interesting environment that those questions were being asked from because actually up until that point, there were no policies either in Safe Work Australia across the board or within the local hospitals that actually supported social workers to be firstly talking about their workload in a structured workload model environment. It was luck of the draw if you got a busy ward or not Um, uh, and whether you were buddied with another social worker or you were alone on that ward or it was really often time luck of the draw. And then there was no policy that was actually supporting social workers to come forward and name it as vicarious trauma or compassion fatigue and no policies that were supporting supervisors or managers to include it regularly in clinical supervision or in performance, annual performance management, right? So there was no permission to have the conversation. And that was when we started talking to people about this issue, those were some of the initial messages that were being resoundingly said to us right yes yeah
1: very much so and that anything to do with a person experiencing vicarious trauma or burnout was quite shameful yeah. to acknowledge um, and interestingly after you and i presented at the world social work day forum i had lots of people com- coming up to me or emailing me actually saying i feel Just so validated to hear you share your story because I thought that I was the only person experiencing this and I felt like I couldn't actually talk about it out loud with people. And that still makes me feel so incredibly sad that our colleagues and friends see this as a personal failing, um, that that it's something that I did or didn't do that has brought this upon myself. And I think uh, the fact that we don't have any of those policies really does accentuate that.
0: Yes. You know,
1: uh, if, if the organisation isn't actually acknowledging that there's safe practices around this, then it must be my fault. It can't be the awkward. Yes,
0: but I also think um, that um, what often happens is that somebody's feeling something and they go to talk to someone about it, often they don't because of the taboo and stigma like you said, but if they do, the conversation very quickly becomes, well, what are you doing about your self-care? Are you going to yoga are you doing meditation are you going and walking on the beach barefoot are you you know sitting and looking at the sunset any other you know sort of (laughs) typical typically naive scenario that should belong in a um old-fashioned commercial right or advertisement like i think i think the fact that these conversations about self-care firstly never get shared between the responsibility of the individual and the responsibility of the employing organisation paired with um, this really naive view of self-care um, actually becomes quite problematic for the social worker who is actually struggling in their every day.
1: Um, it's been a topic that has been talked about lots in my workplace especially since this latest lockdown. I don't think there's any coincidence there <laughs> but um, one of the things that, we, in Journal Club yesterday, we'd read this great article, and we'll put it in the show notes, and it's an editorial from Social Work Journal from last year, where they're actually looking at this whole idea of self-care, air quotes, um, on, on multiple levels, including um, embedding it into the code of practice of American social work, which I just think is so much more sophisticated than what you're talking about, yeah. Mim that often the dialogue is around, oh, yeah, as soon as I finish work, I'll go for a walk or I'll, I'll go to a yoga class. I want to hear the conversation that says, no, your self-care goes on in our work time. That's you right. You embed that into your work. You You breathe in between your cases. You go for a walk at lunch. You take time to go to that professional development. You make sure you go to supervision as opposed to it's done in addition to your workday.
0: Yes. Well, it's that issue of who has to take responsibility for it. Um, and I think, I mean, look, there's so many messages that we get all the time about self-care and also that comes from how we're trained, you know, how many conversations do you hear supervisors saying about having about students? where they say things like, well, that student just wasn't tough enough for this sort of work. You know, that student just couldn't hack it. You know, they're not gonna survive in this environment. As opposed to, what can we do to actually work with this student around self-care strategies? What can we do to work with this student on a sense of professionalism that takes into consideration them as people? Not as robots in a workplace, right yes. yeah, and and all of
1: those matters we can bring to our postgrad colleagues, because I think from the research that we've done, they were saying very clearly that um, there were a number of things that were protective for them, mm. and one of them was to work in an organization that didn't have that culture, that that you've got to be tough to um, to, to work here. Yes. You, you just have to suck it up they were actually talking about the importance of being able to talk with people openly to defuse um if they've had a tough case or or they've had a really rough on call yeah. um evening to be able to do that in a safe space without this judgment of you know well that's just the nature of the work here and you um just cop it um, as opposed to being listened to deeply and um, being accepted, being able to be vulnerable in that space and to be able to acknowledge that it is really tough, yeah. the, the work that they were doing. And they also told us that supervision was one of those spaces that they really felt that they um, they they could actually talk to their supervisor about how they were traveling in relation to their stress levels and
0: yeah although which although that wasn't consistent across the board i think there were a lot of people who were saying supervision should be the space there were people should be saying space it is and then exactly. there were people who were saying it should be and i think supervision is so embedded in our profession as um, the avenue that we have to bring the personal and professional together and to do that critical reflection and analytical thought But actually, often, sadly for a lot of people, it is not that space. Well, especially
1: if it's a a line manager that is indeed providing that clinical um, supervision. So it actually prevents that ability to be vulnerable in that space because the thinking might be, I can't actually let my guard down here and let them know that I'm really struggling with work at the moment because that, that might actually, you know, impact on my career, my... Um, you know, m- m- how I'm perceived in this department. Um, but the thing that gets me about the supervision is how many of us as supervisors embed in, in our sessions are checking in on the well-being of the people that we're supervising. I know I've become a lot more conscious of it since we've done the research yeah. and doing a lot more
0: in that space. But
1: prior to that, no, I don't
0: think so. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? I think that that, um, yeah, the collegial regard, uh, it, it, it needs to shift. It needs to shift and it, people need to... I understand why there's that protective feeling in a line management supervision session. Um, for those listeners who are a bit unsure about what we mean by line management, it's the idea that the person who is managing you and managing your everyday workload, how many cases you're carrying or how you're actually um, travelling in your everyday is also the person giving you clinical supervision and there's a dilemma in that dynamic because actually if you're if you're struggling in your capacity to to carry that caseload that person who is also your line manager they have to actually make sure the caseload gets done so can they really be as present as they need to be for you when that's actually what you're struggling with, what they're managing it's tricky isn't it mm. Liz like it's a really tricky dilemma then for that role as well not not just for the person on the receiving end and and I think that it's important though that we look at
1: um, the fact that as a line manager as 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 seniors, there is a responsibility that they do have to helping to create a safer culture yes. for the The social workers that are working within their department. And I think that's something that I've become a lot clearer around. Like I have my own responsibility in terms of, yes, my self-care, my self-soothing, my looking after myself in and after work. But I think my sense is that the organisation, many of the organisations that social workers work in need to step up and step into that space a lot more. And be taking on more responsibility to helping to create that more safe milieu, if you like. Um, but also coming up with, as we, you know, you and I have started to talk about, what is a safe caseload? Yes. What it, what is it a workload capacity that we we need to be able to to um, um, support our social workers to be
0: sustainable in their work? But don't you think safety is a bit of a like, taboo word in social work. Like, I feel like we talk a lot about the safety of the client, a lot. Um, but I think talking about our own safety, apart from are we going to get hit in the face, I really think that that is an absent discussion in social work practice. And I think every time when we talk about safety, it's always external to us, it's never internal. And it's definitely never about our psychosocial well-being.
1: Or maybe we need to um, change the conversation then.
0: I agree. I think it's a cultural shift. Um, I do think it's starting. And so since we did this piece of research, so we um, surveyed and interviewed 100 social workers across a local health district, which was a phenomenal experience, Liz, like to actually be immersed in that environment and to hear those stories, right? Because like you said before, stories don't get told. So to actually hear people telling stories that they had never told in public before was quite amazing. And um, to be able to then hear people say that they feel that they don't uh, often they don't feel that they are autonomous in their everyday work, that they walk in, they don't know what the day will bring, that it's confronting and unpredictable. To hear people talk about on-call as a really anxiety-provoking experience, I mean, these are conversations that just weren't in the regular, everyday conversations that this local health district had been having up until then, right? So I think it really did produce a shift in the culture. You know, Mm. these stories could come out of the shadows and actually, you know, take centre stage, which I think is a massive change. I do too,
1: but I also think what I've find useful is thinking about other professions that have actually made safety pivotal to, to like their work so I think about what it was like to be a builder mm. say you know several decades ago people were dying on building sites all the time they don't as much anymore miners you know they, they it's a lot safer to work in a mine now than what it was a hundred years ago but I think Um, social workers have to start using this language about ascertaining whether it is in fact safe for me to do that next case whether it is safe for me to go on call and then come back to work um, the next morning yeah but it also should be not just them deciding on that but it should be that there are some protocols around this You know, certainly in our ward now, we're very grateful for the work that's been done by the Royal Prince Alfred social workers who fought to actually have it articulated that you have an eight hour rest break between your last on call and your day shift.
0: Gosh, there you go. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that they had to articulate that in order to allow people to be supported to have that rest period? Yes, because you read
1: that award, and it can be interpreted in multiple ways, and generally not in favour of the social worker. So, I mean, I think, I, I, I mean, I, I look forward to the day that that workload capacity becomes an issue. For like our nurses, we know that they have a ratio of so many nurses to so many beds on a ward. Yeah. Bring it on. Like, why don't social workers have that? Yes. Why don't we have a, have, a, have a quota?
0: Yeah, I would agree completely. And I know across New South Wales, that has been a really big call from the hospitals across the board saying that we actually want to look into this more and we want to establish a model that um, can make this happen. I think that's really important, really important. And students coming out into the profession need to know that they are not walking into the lion's den right? That they actually will be supported and safeguarded in that way. Talking about students... Well, so Mim, so then,
1: then what I would say to them and what I would say to you as as a lecturer yeah, is that when we have those pre-placement interviews with students, when they go to meet a potential supervisor and go to a potential placement, that they also check out what are some of the things that are being done here to work safely in this social work department. Um, I, I think that they can put their field educator or the, to be under the spotlight a bit. Because if it's four or five months there, why, why don't they have a conversation about what do you do? What, how, how do I look after myself in this space and what are you going to be doing as well? In that? I'll tell you why they
0: don't and I'm gonna rewind even on that conversation. The reason why they don't is because they're never educated really properly throughout their training on self-care and what actually really in reality how to understand their own self-care, how to actually put it into practice and understand it as a part of their overall and professional well-being. It doesn't happen and I have to say that in recent time I've been really heartened by the number of articles I'm reading that are about embedding a curriculum of self-care and well-being into the um, Bachelor of Social Work and Master of Social Work qualifying programs. Because actually I think that's the missing piece is that students often get to placement subjects and that's the first time they're hearing about this. And it's actually too late by then because now they're coming face to face with it every day on placement. Like you're saying, there's a crucial conversation that's missing at the beginning, but they can't have had that conversation if they haven't already engaged in a curriculum of self-care. And when I'm talking about that, I'm not talking about Mindfulness 101. I'm actually talking about understanding how self-care can be a part of your professional identity and thinking about your career in terms of longevity. Not just where, why are you doing this degree and where do you want to get to in your first job. How are you actually going to weather the years ahead of you in a career where you are hearing stories every day, where you are encountering situations every day that are you as a person, not just a professional engaging and interacting in that. That's a bigger mm. question. It's a much bigger question that actually, I do believe takes an entire curriculum to work through, not just a, you're on placement, off you go. And
1: you know, I was assisting to Brené Brown. Oh, Brené, worker. good old Brené. Queen social worker. <laughs> Um, interviewing um, a couple of sisters and I've put this in the show notes too and essentially they've written a book and it's around the cycle of stress and the importance of, of finishing off that cycle so that it doesn't get trapped in the body. So, so much of our work is head, heart and soul stuff but we omit to be thinking about the physiological impact of the work that we do and how we release it as yeah. well so I think we also have to move into the science of stress as well when we're working with both our undergraduates but also our social workers and I think if um, you know I might march into work tomorrow except I'll be doing it virtually why aren't we embedding it in job descriptions yes why aren't we embedding it in annual
0: reviews oh about... absolutely annual reviews that should be there in
1: yeah, so along with what are my learning goals for this year, what are the ways in which that I um, I need to embed into my practice to keep me safe in this and then vice versa, what are some of the, th- if I'm the manager, what are some of the things that I can be doing more to support you in your work? Mm. Wouldn't that be a good conversation?
0: Lynn? That would be a great conversation and I think it's really vital. I actually think, you know, you and I, Liz, we talk a lot about lifelong learning and about how you don't just There's no start and stop to this in our professional growth, right? That actually this is a process that we go through throughout our lives and, uh, you know, the social worker we once were when we were a new graduate is quite a different social worker that we are at this point now, right? And, you know, and that's because we've learnt as the, as the time has gone on, we have gained this practice wisdom and practice knowledge, let alone all the theoretical knowledge and all the rest of it, but we've actually lived, as, lived a career, lived in the profession and grown within it. So why are we not living and growing when it comes to self-care and why are we not actually taking that knowledge that we've gained and then training the younger generations to take that with them as well? I feel like we're doing a disservice here. I do too. I do too, Mim. I think
1: it's got to stop right now.
0: Is this a challenge?
1: <laughs> it is. It's a challenge. And I'd be really interested to know from our listeners what they're doing in their workplaces too, whether there's something that they can be sharing with us around yeah. how they work safely um, that's right yeah I, because I, I think let's move away from this sense of I retreat in shame because I'm not coping in my work to just being t- talking about it. This is what us social workers are good at. Yes. talking about it, talking about what works, supporting each other in, in moments of vulnerability and um, yeah, and really being there for each other as well. because I know that when I burnt out, my colleagues and friends saw it before I did. I was so numb to, to anything I think that was going on that they saw the difference in me before I recognised it and so I think there's a real responsibility that we have for our friends and colleagues to be sharing that, to be showing our concern and to be reaching out if we're seeing things that aren't
0: normal to that person's Behavior. Yeah, I um, you know, this came out of the research as well, that those peer support networks are so essential, right? And having, you know, one other person, whether you share the office with the person, whether you have lunch with that person, whoever um, it is, that you have someone that you can talk to about how heavy that day was or how hard that case was or complex or how challenged you felt by it, um, that actually or how much it impacted you, right? like that actually you have someone that you can be having those conversations with and that someone is not always your supervisor, right? And we need to be realistic about that as well, that actually, you know, not every social worker out there has the luxury of picking their supervisor. So actually being able to find those mentors and those, you know, work colleagues who really are there by your side in those difficult moments and that you then in turn can do that for your colleagues as well, right? that you can actually, mm. it's a cycle of support. Um, so I think that's really important.
1: And maybe that's built into making your workplace safer, that, you know, I regularly touch base with my companion, my trusted friend or colleague um, as, a, as a way of nurturing myself throughout the you know my work. Yeah. That that's built in, like supervision's built in.
0: This is reminding me that often when I've taught um, fourth year social work uh, bachelor students or you know final master's students and when they gather at the end I often say look around you because this is your first network of social workers and this is you are the group that will now take you forward and support each other and you'll gather other people along the way but there are people here that you will continue to take with you and I think that's like it's that forming of that you know we've often talked about the tribe on this podcast but it's that network forming of a network that carries you in the ups and downs of the job which I think is really essential
1: well we could talk about this again perhaps we probably will knowing you and I but I think we need to maybe wind it up
0: well before we do that what I did want to tell our listeners was that you know this is such an important conversation and um Uh, it's kind of a a pre-conversation to later in the year, we're going to be showcasing a local health district, which has really done something quite substantial in this space. And um, and so we'll, touch back on this conversation at that point then but just to let listeners know that this is now a bit of a theme for us for the rest of the year and it's really important to us that out there you're hearing hearing this conversation and you're taking it into your workplaces and talking with your colleagues and having those conversations and then let us know let us know what you're doing what you find is helpful Um, it's really important we make this an alive conversation because it's about I think it's about our um resources as a as a discipline across the board i don't think this is an individual issue at all Liz. oh i agree totally agree well thank you for this conversation it was nice being the story liz on this episode (laughs) and um and uh everybody out there i hope you're coping well in um COVID at the moment we We know it's a struggle and everyone's battling every day, both personally and professionally. I want to do a big shout out to those who are working in frontline jobs and really taking the brunt um, in your space at the moment. And um, hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, www.socialworkstories.com. Let us know how you're doing uh, and uh, whether there's any stories in particular that you think will carry you through this time because we would love to be showcasing those as well. Anything final from you, Liz? Just one thing, Nim. Yeah.
1: I think it's our third year anniversary, is it, it not?
0: It is. Happy birthday. Woo. You We're all can't see us, but Liz champagne. and I are having a bit of a boogie at the moment. Tragically. Tragically. Yes. Shout out to Justin Stash, our producer, um, for all you do for the podcast as well. Three years since we launched this podcast and, um, and a really exciting time. Yes, to another three years yay absolutely thanks so much liz thank you justin thank you everyone see you all hear from you all soon bye